Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Every year in January, the Catholic Church celebrates the baptism of the Lord. We hear these stories of John the Baptist going out to the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. But have you ever stopped to wonder, why would he begin his movement out there in the desert? If you've ever been on a Holy Land pilgrimage and you've gone to this traditional spot where the baptism took place, you're you're looking around and you're realizing this is in the middle of nowhere. Why would John the Baptist start his movement to prepare the way for Jesus out there in the desert? It seems crazy. But if you understood with the eyes of a first century Jew, you would see that what John the Baptist was doing was making a very powerful statement, a powerful statement not just about his own ministry, but about what Jesus was coming to do. So if you want to understand Jesus, you want to understand his messianic mission, you want to understand all of his public ministry that we're going to encounter in the readings throughout this new liturgical year, then you need to understand why John the Baptist began his ministry out in the middle of nowhere in the Jordan River in the wilderness of Judea. And that's what we're going to talk about in this week's special edition of All Things Catholic. It was recorded on location right there at the Jordan River when I was leading a Holy Land pilgrimage there in 2019. So here we are on location right at the Jordan River at the site commemorating Jesus' baptism. We see right on the border here of, of Israel and Jordan and pilgrims from all over the world come to this very spot to remember Jesus' baptism. I want to tell you about the first time I came here many decades ago on my first pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I was a graduate student doing my doctoral studies in Rome, and I, I joined a group run by the Franciscans that were going all around the holy sites. And we were in Jerusalem, and I remember coming down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up on the mountain. And, and when you come down here, it's only about a little over a half hour drive, but to go from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River in the Judean desert, really close to the Dead Sea, you are going to one of the lowest spots on the face of the earth. The Dead Sea some 1,200 feet below sea level. And when you come down here from the, the mountain of Jerusalem, your ears are popping as you go down uh, on the bus ride. And I remember descending into this Judean wilderness and just seeing all this water evaporating out of the Dead Sea. And you're out in the middle of nowhere. And I remember thinking, why would John the Baptist begin his ministry way out here in the middle of nowhere? Of all the places he could start his ministry of calling the people to repentance and baptizing, why would he come out here? Maybe you've wondered that as we've been on pilgrimage and we drove out here into this wilderness. There's other better places that you could attract more people than way out here in the middle of nowhere in all this heat and all this wilderness. You know, there's a lot of water up in Galilee. We saw that, right? And, and lots of uh, activity going on around the Sea of Galilee. Couldn't John the Baptist have done his ministry there? Uh, there's water sources in Jerusalem. And, and that's a massive amount of, of people living in Jerusalem. John the Baptist could have attracted a lot of people if he just did his ministry right there and saved them the trouble from coming all the way out here into the middle of nowhere. Why did he come here? That's what I want to take a look at. So the Jordan River has a lot of symbolism. It's not just a source of water. 
It has a lot of religious symbolism in the scriptures for the Jewish people. The Jordan River is a place of new beginnings in the Bible. If you may recall in the story of the Exodus, what river did they cross when they were entering into the promised land? After 40 years of wandering around the wilderness, 40 years after they left Egypt, they finally enter the promised land by crossing what river? The Jordan River. It was a place of new beginnings. It gave new life to the people of Israel, but also new life to individuals. You may have heard the story. You can read about this in the book of Kings. Naaman the Syrian. He was a man that was afflicted with leprosy. And then the prophet came and washed him in the waters of the Jordan River, and he was cleansed from his leprosy. And he got a new beginning, a fresh start. So simply, the idea of going to the Jordan River, that alone, I think, would bring to mind a lot of symbolism. It would symbolize new life, a new start, a new beginning for the people of Israel. But that's not all. There's even more symbolism here because this isn't just the Jordan River. We saw that the Jordan River runs way in the north of the Sea of Galilee and the fertile lands of Galilee, comes all the way down here in the south into the Judean wilderness. John the Baptist chose to do baptism not north of the Sea of Galilee on the Jordan River, where it's much more fertile. He chose to come down here into the Judean wilderness, out into the desert, and to cross the river. What would that symbolize? I want you to put yourself in the mindset of a Jew in the first century. What would this bring to mind, the idea of somebody leading the people out in the wilderness, crossing the Jordan River, and coming back into the land? What would that symbolize? It symbolizes and recalls the Exodus story. The Exodus story. And so what I want us to see is how this would have been understood in light of the Jews in the first century. You see, it'd be kind of like this. If you were a Jew in the first century and you heard about a man leading the people out into the wilderness and, he, and they're crossing the river, they go into the river for baptism, they come out of the river and come back into the land, that would be like a reenactment of the Exodus story. It'd be kind of like this today. Imagine if the United States government started issuing heavy taxes on the iPhone. And anyone that had an iPhone suddenly had to go back and pay all these extra taxes. And if you wanted to buy the new iPhone, there was even bigger taxes, hundreds and hundreds of dollars of taxes on every iPhone. And imagine if the Americans in the United States just got angry about this. And there was, all this big, there was a big plan on social media to everyone to go to Boston and bring your iPhones to Boston. And we're going to go to the Boston Harbor. We're going to get on a boat. We're going to take our iPhones and throw them into the Boston Harbor. What would that symbolize? Why would you be doing that? You're reenacting the Boston Tea Party way back at the beginning of our nation when the, the original Americans took the tea that was being so taxed heavily by the British and threw it into the harbor. So it'd be like, you know, in a culture, when you do certain actions, it takes on greater significance that you might miss out on if you don't know that culture's history. That's what I want you to think about with the Jordan River and John the Baptist coming out here in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, to lead the people into the desert, to cross the river and come back into the land. It was a reenactment of the Exodus story. And that's why so many people come out here. Who would want to join a movement way out here in the middle of nowhere? Unless there was profound religious symbolism behind it. You see, the Jewish people were hoping for a new Exodus. The prophets foretold that God would one day come and rescue the people once again, just like he did 
long time ago under Pharaoh and the Egyptians that there would be a new exodus and God would liberate the people from their new oppressors. And there was great hope that one day maybe the Messiah will come and he'll, he'll rescue the people from the Roman oppressors. So John the Baptist coming out here and doing baptisms in the Jordan River would symbolize all of this. And we know John the Baptist wasn't the only person that did things like this. Uh, around the time and the generations before and after John the Baptist, there were other people that would go out into the wilderness. There was a man that led people on a pilgrimage all the way from Egypt through the wilderness and crossed the river and came into the land and tried to make an attack on Jerusalem and they were destroyed by the Roman armies. So there were other people that did things like this. He wasn't the only one. It was a reenactment of the Exodus story to spark hope in a new Exodus, a new liberation. I want to talk, though, about John the Baptist himself. I want to talk about what Matthew's gospel tells us about John the Baptist. It's really interesting. I write about this in my, my new book on Matthew's gospel, uh, God With Us. Uh, in the chapter, I, I talk about how, uh, the chapter on the baptism, I talk about how Matthew's gospel tells us more information in the introduction of John the Baptist, more information about what John the Baptist was wearing than what John the Baptist was actually preaching. All we hear is that he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. That's it. That's all we get, this call to repentance. But we learn more information about the clothes of John the Baptist than we do about his actual, his actual preaching ministry and what he was preaching. What was John the Baptist wearing? Does anyone remember what he was wearing? He was wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his loins. Now, why do I need to know that? I mean, of all the things, I mean, uh, to, to try to think about with John the Baptist, why do I want that image in my head? Why is that so theologically important? I want to know what John the Baptist was preaching. What was his message? Why do I need to hear first about his fashion much more than what I hear about his preaching? Well, if you were a Jew in the first century and you heard about someone coming out here to the Jordan River who was wearing a garment of camel's hair around and, and, and a leather girdle around his loins, that would bring to mind one of your great heroes in your Old Testament scriptures. And who would that hero be? In the second book of Kings, chapter one, it's clear. The prophet Elijah, yes, the prophet Elijah, he was famous for wearing those kinds of clothes. When a, a certain king hears about a prophet in Israel, who, who was wearing a garment of camel's hair and, and a leather girdle around his loins, that king in 2 Kings first chapter 1 says, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. So they, everyone knew exactly who that was. He was famous for wearing those clothes. It'd be kind of like, let's say father wanted to do karaoke tonight and he was going to come out and he was going to wear a white glove and do the moonwalk. <laughs> Everyone knows he's trying to imitate Michael Jackson, right? If you know the pop culture, you get the pop culture references. Well, in the first century Jewish world, what was their pop culture? Did they have MTV? Did they have Hollywood? Did they have iTunes? No, their pop culture was the scriptures. It was the Bible stories that they're reading over and over again, hearing over and over again in the synagogue, reenacting in their feasts. This is what's in their head, and these are the cultural references there are. So when John the Baptist is out here in the wilderness, He's intentionally dressing up like Elijah. When he comes out here, he's dressing exactly like him, wearing the clothes that Elijah was famous for, 
the garment of camel's hair, and the leather girdle around his loins. He's trying to say, I'm the new Elijah. Why? Why is he trying to do that? Because the last prophecy, do you know the Malachi prophecy? Every Catholic should know the Malachi prophecy. So the last prophet sent to Israel is the prophet Malachi, comes toward the end of the Old Testament. So the last of the prophets. Malachi foretells that there will be someone who will come to prepare the way for the Lord. There will be some great prophet who will come to prepare the way for the Lord, and that prophet is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's the very end of the book of Malachi. You can read about that in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Malachi. This new Elijah is going to come. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And what's he going to do? He's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And after that, after that line about the, the prophet, the new Elijah coming, the book of Malachi ends, and there is no prophet sent to Israel until John the Baptist. So for a couple hundred years, there's silence from God. No prophet comes to Israel. No prophetic book is written after Malachi. And the last prophetic word ringing in the Jewish people's ears from God as they're waiting and longing for the new exodus, waiting and longing for the Lord to come, waiting and longing for the King, the Messiah to come, the last word is, get ready for a new Elijah. The new Elijah will come. Someone will come in the spirit and power of Elijah and he will prepare the way for the Lord. So think about this. This starts to make so much sense. You know, when you first come out here, like, why would John the Baptist come out here? And why would anyone want to come hear him and be a part of this way out here in the middle of nowhere? But when you know the symbolism of the Jordan, you know the symbolism of the Jordan in the wilderness, the reenactment of the Exodus story, fueling all those new Exodus hopes, and then you hear what John the Baptist is wearing, you realize everyone's so excited to come out here because they say he's the new Elijah. He's the one preparing the way for the Lord. Let's go join him because the Messiah is going to follow on his footsteps. John the Baptist is the new Elijah. Now, another little detail here. Think about this. Who was Elijah? Elijah's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He did a number of miracles. He challenged the wicked kings. He challenged the wicked kings, especially King Ahab, who led the people in idolatry. And, and Elijah challenged him to repent of his idolatry. Elijah was persecuted by that king. He suffered greatly being persecuted by a wicked king. Does that sound familiar? Who's John the Baptist? He's someone that called the people to repent like Elijah. And he challenged a wicked king in his wicked ways. Who was that wicked king? Herod. What did he challenge Herod on? His adultery. He stole his brother's wife. And while everyone just remained silent in the face of this attack on marriage, all the faithfuls were just being quiet. They're afraid to say anything. John the Baptist was not afraid. He trusted God, and he was willing to stand up for marriage. And he stood up to this wicked king, no matter what the cost might be, and he said, this is wrong. You should repent of this. You should not commit adultery. You do not steal your brother's wife. And he suffered for it. He went to jail. And eventually, he got beheaded. John the Baptist is a great hero, a great prophet, a great hero defending marriage in a time when he was willing to suffer for it. Let's remember that in our own day and age. Let's be like John the Baptist and not be afraid and stand up for marriage. But John the Baptist, as great as he was, 
was preparing the way for someone else, for Jesus. Just like Elijah, his predecessor. Elijah was a great prophet, challenged the wicked king, was persecuted for this, but he was paving the way, preparing the way for someone even greater, a greater prophet to come after him, who would do even greater miracles. Who was that prophet? Elisha, the prophet Elisha, his successor. The prophet Elisha got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He did even greater miracles, many more miracles. He, he multiplied barley loaves to feed a multitude. He cured lepers like Naaman the Syrian I mentioned, the, the man with leprosy that was cured at the Jordan River. Elisha uh, made things float that shouldn't float. He made an axe float on water. Elisha did many great miracles. Do you see the parallels here between Elijah and John the Baptist and Elisha and Jesus? Elijah was the prophet who challenged the wicked king and was persecuted for it, but he prepared the way for Elisha, who did all these other great miracles. John the Baptist is the new Elijah. Jesus is the new Elisha. Jesus will heal lepers. Jesus will raise children from the dead like Elisha. Elisha uh, Jesus will multiply barley loaves to feed a multitude, and, 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 and just as Jesus will. And Jesus will make things float on water that shouldn't, like Peter, at least for a while. <laughs> but here's the really cool part of the story. When Elijah handed off the baton to Elisha, when Elijah ended his ministry, and then Elisha began his, where did that take place? Right at the Jordan River. It's so awesome to be here in the Holy Land and to see these places, to be at the Jordan River and remember these stories of the Old Testament, like Elijah passing on the baton to Elisha, and then we could visually see how it prefigures another great event that happened here, John the Baptist handing on the baton to Jesus. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And just as Elisha, Elisha got the double portion of the Spirit, what did Jesus, what happened to Jesus here in the Jordan River? He steps into the water as he comes to be baptized, and the heavens open, and the Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove. And that Heavenly Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So, so many amazing things happening at this Jordan River. The last thing I want you to think about and what's important for us as we're on this pilgrimage using the 20 mysteries of the rosary as our itinerary, what is the first luminous mystery that took place right here at the Jordan River? The baptism of Jesus. So this moment launches Jesus's public ministry. And we can see it because the Bible tells us the spirit descended upon Jesus. That's an important little Biblical data point, because when the Spirit comes upon someone, that often happens in the Old Testament when a king is being anointed. When King Saul was anointed as king, the Spirit came upon him. When David was anointed as king, the Spirit came upon him. So when we as readers of the Bible, if we're looking at it from a biblical perspective, we're understanding this the way a first century Jew would, when you see the Spirit coming upon Jesus, what are you assuming? This is Jesus's anointing. This is his anointing as the king. This is the inauguration of his messianic mission. His public ministry is beginning now. In fact, that's how Peter interprets it in Acts the Apostles, chapter 10, verse 34. He looks back at the baptism of Jesus and says, that was the moment of his anointing. This is the beginning of his public ministry. The new Elisha is here. He's been prepared for by the new Elijah, John the Baptist. And now Jesus, the new Elisha, is going to launch his ministry throughout the land 
announcing the kingdom, calling people to repentance and healing every disease and infirmity. So it all began right here at the Jordan River, way back in the time of Moses, in the time of Elijah, and now in the time of Jesus. So let's give thanks to the Lord. Let's pull out our rosary beads and let's think through and meditate upon this great mystery of the baptism of Jesus right here at the Jordan River. If you'd like to learn more about my pilgrimages to the Holy Land, I'm leading one this summer and one in the fall. You can contact me at holyland.edwardsri at gmail.com. That's holyland.edwardsri at gmail.com. You can also reach out to me on my website and learn about my pilgrimages, not just to Israel, but I also do trips to Rome and to Poland. You can contact me on my website, edwardsri.com. That's edwardsri.com. Love to see you on a pilgrimage someday. Thanks for listening. This has been a special edition of All Things Catholic recorded on location in the Holy Land at the Jordan River while leading a pilgrimage there in 2019. God bless.